0: Hey, welcome to Creative Reset, the podcast that explores... Oh, wait, hold on. Alright, welcome to Creative Reset the podcast that looks at the creative journey to help us understand our obstacles and how to go over, under, around, or right through them. This is how we reset our creative selves. This week, I'm talking to Tony Sanfilippo. Tony's a drummer, really, a multi-instrumentalist, and recording engineer who owns Oxide Lounge Recording Studio in Bloomington, Illinois. Just a quick note. After the interview, we'll play a song by Whiplot, one of Tony's many band projects. On Bandcamp, where I bought the song, the band is described as quirky pop and power pop, both apt descriptions of the band. During the interview, Tony will describe some of the strange ways they went around they went about recording some of their music. And again, the music mentioned here, including music by Saraqua and Whiplot, are available on Bandcamp. hey how's your monday going did you have class this morning did you go i had
1: dance class this morning so i got up and and went to dance class and played for a while and of course it's it's covid dance class so there's i'm nearer to a i'm in a different part of the room and we have these 10 by 10 squares for the dancers in the room and then we have a screen going on you know like a big screen projection deal for the students that are on zoom and and for the first half of the class, they can all kind of do the same thing. But then once the dancers in the room start going back and forth on the floor, what, what this teacher has been doing is coming up with something similar that, that can still be contained, because most of the kids don't have a big space that they're working in.
0: So you see so what, what do you play for them what what kinds of instruments do you bring
1: i have a, a five gallon water jug which i've had back since back in the spiritual twins days i used to play it in the in the zero room you probably saw me play it back then oh yeah uh i still have the same one and it sounds <laughs> it sounds great i use it, i use it on recordings for stuff i do all kinds of stuff with it i do things where i stick a microphone in it and re- put it in front of a bass drum and record all the thumpy weirdness i do all kinds of stuff with it so i play that a lot for warm-ups because it's lower in volume and it kind of has this kind of thing that works for warmups and stuff. And then I have a pair of congas there and I have a bucket full of like maracas and toys and stuff that belong to the university tambourines.
0: Okay. Right.
1: Um, they have a, a Cajon, which is the the box you see a lot of guys. Yeah, it's yeah. instrument. A Cajon sucks as, <laughs> a, as a, as a player Cajon sucks Okay. because it's physically,
0: because you're sitting on top of it and you're sitting on over.
1: top and to get that cool based on the coolest part of it, you have to reach down. Yeah. And so they bought one a few years ago because somebody was at a conference and somebody used one and they thought it was cool. And they bought one for me and I used it a little bit. I'm like, this thing's uncomfortable as shit. I'm not (laughs) using this anymore. So I don't use it. You know, if if other dudes want to use it, that's cool. I mean, they sound cool. And there are some dudes who do some really cool things with it. But I'm like, I'm old. My back is already screwy. I see the chiropractor every two weeks as it is. I'm not making it worse to play this stupid instrument. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So what else, what other kinds of things do you do? you you got the recording studio. I've got You're The, the recording
1: studio is my main thing. I, I am still a very active musician. I play with the Starek band, Whiplot the band that Dean Carlson and I started right before I moved to Bloomington or right when I moved to Bloomington, basically. It was the two of us at first and then we got guys and turned into a band We are still technically a band 27 years later, 28 years later, whatever it is, 24 years. I don't know. I'd have to do the math. It's been a while. 97. You're the math guy. I moved here. (laughs) I moved here in 97. We 96 when we played our first gig in the fall of 97 and we're still a band. The problem besides COVID is that the guitar player moved to Colorado a few years ago, but he's from this area. And so is his wife is from Bloomington proper. So they come to town. And what we do is if they're coming to town for something, which has often been a Christmas thing, we set up a gig or two while he's in town. And nice. it's like, you know, it's like putting on an old t-shirt you love. It just feels great. And it's like, oh, cool. I know how to do this. This is fun. I love these dudes. And sometimes even he comes to town, we don't have time for a gig or he's going to be in town in the middle of a week. We'll just get together and play. There's there's a song on our band camp site that Dean had literally written only one part of it and we had goofed on it for on and off for years and he finally wrote like the second part of it and we were just gonna play and have fun and hang out with fish because he was in town and then Dean was like oh i almost called you to tell you to put some mics up because i i finally finished she's got nothing i'm like really i can there are mics we can make this happen and so i did this really simple setup we recorded live in the room you know one mic on the guitar amp, a DI on the bass, too much on the drums, a DI on the acoustic guitar that actually, Dean might not have been playing the acoustic guitar, did a scratch vocal and he re-sang the vocal, but I had him singing out in the live room on the same mic. And we just, and it was literally record, mix, put on Bandcamp all within six hours.
0: How do, how do people find what you put on Bandcamp? What, do, what's the address for that?
1: That's whiplot, W-I-P-L-O-T, the band, dot Bandcamp.
0: Okay. All right. Well, how much? what do you have in there in, in terms of music?
1: Literally everything we have ever recorded is up there. We, I did an album. I, I recorded an album we did really early on at the studio I used to work at. Our second record was done in Fish's home studio. I, there's a, a live record that was done at the beat kitchen in Chicago. It was Vince's my brother, Vince, the artist formerly known as Vince. It was his third I don't think it was his 40th birthday. Was it his 30th birthday? It 30. It was some kind of Vince birthday party. <laughs> and we came up and played it. And he rented a stereo mic and had the sound man record the whole thing to dad. So we we put that out. And that was Do you remember the Did Somebody Say McDonald's ad campaign? The we called that record did somebody say Whiplot. And uh, did the cupper and, you know, you turn the McDonald's M upside down, you get a W. So we had the whole little, you know, cartoon voice thing with the W that looked like the M. And did somebody say Whiplot? It's the live record from from the Bee Kitchen. And then a record we did at Oxide Lounge, my current studio, and some other oddball stuff, including that, you know, very off-the-cuff version of She's Got Nothing done very quickly. As a matter of fact, there are guitar solos that just in the moment, like, let's have fun let's not let the lead guitar player play a guitar solo let's have the other three of us play guitar solos so the bass player played a guitar solo the singer played a guitar solo and i played a guitar solo <laughs> and i have them all going in there it's just it's just just ridiculous because what the hell why not kind of recording it's awesome yeah
0: so tell, tell, how did you get started? Like, what, what was that What was that process? Because I met you probably, what, early to mid-90s
1: Yeah, in um, Chicago? So I don't had, really know
0: much about your life before that.
1: I'm just a kid from the suburbs, like you. And my dad's Uncle Mario was a drummer. Oh, okay. And I was always interested music. I was always drawn to music. There was a lot of music playing in my house. My mom, I think, it, to the best of my knowledge, still turns the stereo up loud enough to hear all over the house when she's cleaning and she's always done that and they they went to concerts and took us to concerts and took us to musicals at the high school and concerts at the high school but also like you know professional concerts rock concerts and stuff i i saw kissing like when i was like eight or nine years old (laughs) you know and stuff like that we we dragged my dad to see the grateful dead when vince and i were big into the dead stuff like that so there was always music around and I always wanted to play out and and I remember we went to Uncle Mario's one time when I was little because he died when I was like six or so, oh. six, seven, something like that. But I remember going to his house and he had this green sparkle drum set, which I have a picture of him playing, which is awesome. And I had to like, you know, I'm little, so I had to walk over to the bass drum pedal and play it and then walk around the snare drum and play the hi-hat with my foot. You know, that's how small I was. <laughs> and, and, and he showed me how the snare drum, you could, you could flip a little lever and it changes sound. I thought that was amazing. Yeah. like the coolest thing ever right and so shortly after that he gave me a pair of sticks and a practice pad and showed me how to play um traditional grip which is you know when when your hands don't match right right uh, you see the jazz guys do it a lot he kind of showed me that but then when i joined band in school they they flipped me over to playing match grip and so i you know so i had the practice pad and i used to set up pillows and stuff and you know play along to music even without a drum set and I remember my mom loved Barry Manilow. We saw Barry Manilow once when I was a kid. And he has a song called Studio Musician. And it kind of explains, you know, that that's what, what a studio musician is. You just get called to play on the record and you go home kind of thing. Yeah. And so I remember we had a toy phone and it was just like, it was an old handle part of an old phone. It felt like it was this big because I was still small. It was probably <laughs> normal size, you know, Bakelite thing. And I used to put that there when I would also play along to the, and I'm sitting on the floor, I get the practice pad and big pillows and I'm beating on them. I'm hearing the different sounds and trying to arrange them and trying to imitate what I'm hearing. And I would keep that little plastic, you know, Bakelite phone piece handy so that I could get called to play. On
0: oh, right. Because you were a studio musician at that point.
1: Cause because that's what I, I thought. Well, I better have the phone available, <laughs> even though, of course, it's not a phone hooked up to anything. Right? But I had I had the phone to do the thing and, and play along and get calls to play gigs, and then I joined band in fourth grade and went through that. I was one of the, you know, I was always the kid. With, who, with
0: drum and drums was your first instrument.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and I, my dad, my dad was like an officer in the baseball league. So they were doing a rummage sale one year, which is like a giant garage sale you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. to gain money. And somebody brought a snare drum. Yeah. And so, and my dad was in, in the government of the baseball league or whatever the hell you call it. And so he actually bought that drum before the sale. <laughs> it was that drum in a stand and brought it home. Nepotism. And he made money so he still the the baseball league still got money out of it somebody donated the drug i think my dad gave five dollars for it might be ten but i think it was five dollars and it's i still have it which is awesome i i don't sell gear much i, I noticed
0: yeah yeah yeah
1: you, you've been to the place and it's it's a really cool it's a six and a half inch by 14 mahogany slingerland snare drum from the 50s it's a student model oh, nice. from the 50s. Yeah. It's got a very specific sound and I still use it on things. It's not my main snare drum anymore. It hasn't been for years, uh, but it's still a cool drum and it still can be used a lot. My, my friend Chris, who's a drummer and a studio owner in North Carolina, came. he was running through town. We, we both recorded some stuff for a friend of ours in California while he was in town. And he played on that drum and he's still like, you know, that's the coolest drum you got, this and that. So, yeah, So so I had that drum even before school band okay you know i probably got that drum in like second grade and school band started in fourth grade and i had like a toy drum set and all kinds of stuff and then i joined band and i actually practiced and did all the stuff i i was always kind of the the star of the drum line because i was the one who, who was practicing and paying attention and and did well so like by fifth grade i started playing eighth grade graduation at the junior high okay you know so what happened Cause they would they would use fifth and sixth graders to fill in for the eighth graders who were graduating oh right yeah in in the junior high band so all through from fourth grade and through eighth grade i went to school an hour earlier than everybody else for band or 45 minutes or whatever the hell it was yeah. so then in fifth and sixth grade three days a week for the you know it's starting in like april or something i would have to go to the junior high to rehearse for for graduation and then come to grade school and and do band at grade school and then do my grade school stuff. So I was always kind of the advanced guy because I actually did the work.
0: Yeah, and it makes you feel I don't know when you when you get to go be with that that older group. It kind of makes you feel special and yeah, all that. for it's sure. Kind of a nice feeling
1: for sure. And I kind of always had that. I and so so I was in the band program through junior high and then in high school I was also in the band program and I sang in the choir even though I'm a shitty singer. I went to West Leiden.
0: OK, OK. And
1: we had a decent program. Our band teacher cared. Our, the choir teacher was there when I was there. He was very good. And so I, I was in the choir. And, and you can you can be a kind of halfway OK singer and be in a choir. If you hold a pitch, the good singers around you help you and you make the sound bigger. But I was never a good singer. But I sang anyway, and it was fun. It was better than a study hall, for sure. And so I think it was my, my junior or senior year, my choir teacher was one of those guys who his whole family was musical yeah his brothers were players his parents were players he's an amazing piano player and an amazing singer and he said to me my brother is musical director for a musical you know community theater kind of thing would would you be interested in, in playing that gig and i said yes you know so that was only the second time I ever played anywhere that mattered outside of school things. But it was cool that, and, and I got this, and this is still a thing that is really important in the music business. He thought I was talented enough, but also together enough that he was comfortable telling his brother, the musical director of feel, this kid can do that gig. Yeah. Nice. Because, and that's a big thing, and I'm sure it's, it's big with actors, too. You can be a great player, but if you're perpetually late yep. or perpetually unprepared or perpetually a pain in the ass, <laughs> you get less and less gigs that way. But when when somebody because you're you're risking both reputations when you suggest somebody Yeah,
0: you're somebody. putting yourself on the line.
1: Because that's something they teach us in music school too. If you have to sub out of a gig, I think a lot of people automatically think, send somebody not as good as me so that way I don't lose my gig. Right. <laughs> but that's terrible advice. Because if you send somebody who makes the gig bad, not only was the gig bad, and is that guy's not gonna get work from whoever's gig it was but he's also pissed at you because you're the one who sent the guy who made the gig bad. <laughs> right. So yeah. you should always send somebody at least as good as you or better. So, <laughs> so that was a big deal to me. I had played, we had all in, in junior high, a friend of the bass player's mom was getting married. And we played it like a, a Saturday afternoon wedding reception. Like yeah. it was like five of us from the jazz band and, and, in junior high, my mom still has that $35 in an envelope somewhere from my first gig.
0: Oh, that's your first
1: paying gig. My first paying gig, I was in junior high.
0: Oh, nice. Nice.
1: And so the, so I did all this stuff through high school and I played in band. And I played in jazz band and I, I was in theater for, for plays and stuff. But every year when the musical hit, I never once auditioned for the musical because I was going to play in the orchestra.
0: For right. The yeah.
1: And yeah. and always did. And that was really cool, too, because, you know, you're limited on space and you have to deal with with singers on stage and all those things. Plus, a lot of times what would happen is they wouldn't always have a drum set player and a percussion player, depending on the the musical. Right. If there was a lot of both, they would have two people. But oftentimes they would just have one. So I would have like a bass drum and a tom-tom snare drum, a couple of cymbals. But instead of floor toms I might have a pair of timpani. Uh Uh-huh. And under the under the hi hat I might have a set of bells and a little a little table of some sort with shaky things or tambourines and maracas or whatever. And and so I would have to kind of have either have both books up or have like little augmentations into the main book of the place I need to play the bells or something. Oh, okay. Like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. And that was always kind of fun. If we weren't having two but it was written for two, like which thing got blown off to do the more important thing. Or can I figure out a way to, you know, play the timpani, but also play the backbeat on this snare drum or whatever?
0: <laughs> How hard is that to do those two completely different things at the same time?
1: Playing drum set is a four limb operation anyway. Yeah. So once you can do that, you can kind of do things. It's when the things are totally different that it's hard. To... Yeah, yeah. Like what What I find hard, I can I can grab a shaker or maracas so, or some sort and put it in my hand with my with with a drumstick and play. And it's just kind of playing along to how I'm playing the drum set. Right. But it's hard for me to play a tambourine, which goes on a different plane. You know, shaking a tambourine is is horizontal, but drumming is vertical. Right. Right. So it's hard for me to grab a tambourine in this hand and play a backbeat with this hand. That kind of messes with my head a little bit. I can do it. But it's not as great as it could be. It's uh, There are other people who it's do like the, it That's the better. whole
0: patting your head, rubbing your stomach. Yeah, which I wish I could do
1: that. That's that's easy for me. Oh, look at, yeah, switch. look at you. <laughs> I, that's, that's nothing for me because of all these years of playing both limb things. And right. there, there's a trick I learned. I learned it kind of in college, but I teach it to younger students. What happens with drum students, everybody has a dominant hand and mm-hmm. a, a weak hand. So what happens with drummers is often chat, 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 chat. When you want to hear that, 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 right. Nice, even sound. So so you, that's a big fight. And one of the things I learned to do, and I teach students to do a lot is to do things with your, your weak hand, which is 90% of the time is the left hand, right? Most yep. people are right-handed is to do things you would normally do with your right hand, using your left to strengthen, not strengthen, but also add dexterity.
0: Yeah, and can I rewire your 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 brain to th- to, yeah. to balance balance them out a little yeah. bit. Yeah.
1: So I can do a lot of things. I don't call myself ambidextrous truly, but I can do a lot of things with my left hand that maybe other people wouldn't be able to do. Right?
0: Now, did you did you have a band when you were in high school? Did you go out and play or was that later? I
1: a little bit. We played like talent shows at school and stuff like that. So I never like I was never in a band that had a set list until I was in college.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about college then. And and I'm not going to guess where you went then because like... (laughs) (laughs)
1: Because you messed up the high school thing?
0: I messed up the high school. I went
1: to Northern Illinois in DeKalb. Okay. Okay. And and I have a music performance degree. I lived on the music interest floor in the dorms my first year, which was the dorm that was literally right across the street from the music building, which was fantastic. Yeah. Because I could, when I had early classes, I could kind of roll out of bed and roll right into class. And... When I was practicing, I could get home really quick or I can get over there. And there was a rule at, at, at NIU at the time, and I don't know how it is now, but the music building rule, and I think this was the same for the art building, was if you got in the doors by midnight, you could stay. But they okay. locked the doors at midnight. Right. So you couldn't get in after midnight unless you knew somebody was in there and you could bang on a window or whatever. And there was also a key that floated around that. Night. especially because you could you could check out keys even for the building like if you were playing a gig late you knew it was going to go past midnight you could check out a key from the main office to get in to put your instrument away before you went home and stuff like that so so but there was also a couple keys that floated around so if you just kind of got yourself one of those you didn't have to ever sign in oh nice so by my senior year i had one of those and then when i graduated i passed it on to a buddy of mine and I assume he did the same thing and I assume the same key is still floating around, (laughs) hopefully still floating around the percussion department specifically. That's what that is my hope. Yeah, so I got a a music performance degree and I played in the orchestra, I played in the wind ensemble, I played in the jazz ensemble, I played jazz combo stuff, I did two recitals, I did all all the stuff. I The only ensemble I think, I, I sang in the U choir for a couple semesters, and I think the only the only ensemble besides vocal ensembles that i didn't play in that i might have thought to play in was the gamelan ensemble which is indonesian percussion i played in the steel band niu steel band is the america's first collegiate steel band oh nice okay and, and also the guy who ran the band who is the six foot three big dude who was from trinidad where steel drums were first invented and was a brilliant musician you know he was right there Giving me the look if I wasn't in, in the groove, and then I got the drum set gig when the other guy graduated, and that was that was probably the best training I ever had. I've had a bunch of great teachers. My junior high teacher was great; uh, she was the orchestra teacher, but she was a percussion player, so I took private lessons from her. And then she sent me to the guy who was her private teacher when she was about my age, who taught at the other high school in my district. And when you're the drum set player, you know when you're in a section when there's two or three cello players or two or three lead players or double second players or whatever you know you can kind of you got someone you can look at when you're lost you got all those things that when you're when you're playing the iron or or the congas or or drum set you're the only one
0: when during your was it during your college career that you sort of decided i'm going to be a professional something in the music oh no i
1: decided that when i was in fourth grade
0: oh fourth grade okay that decision okay
1: or probably earlier but did you know when i understood when i saw musicians on tv When I saw musicians in public, I realized that that is a thing you can do. You can pursue being a musician. And it was literally until my late 30s or 40s, it's the only thing I ever considered actually doing. I might figure out how to make money somewhere else. Right. But as far as pursuing something, it was always music.
0: So you, when you left college, what what was your first step? What'd you do?
1: When I got out of college, Vince and I were playing around Chicago as spiritual twins. Okay. We had been playing in a band called Stomping Iguanas before that. Even while I was still in college, I was coming back and forth right. for gigs. So so the Iguanas probably continued on for a little while, and then Vince and I kind of split from them and did our acoustic thing. And I was doing just some kind of jobby things, you know, cover band things here and there. I was a member of the Rockford Symphony at the time my first two years, because I started, Rockford is close to DeKalb, right, so a lot of NIU music students end up playing Rockford symphony gigs, so I had started doing that while I was a student, so I I still did that for a couple of seasons, just driving back and forth, I was like percussion four or something, so I didn't even play on every concert, but I did that, I played, played in a couple bands, I played the Weird Sisters, of course, which Mm -hmm. you probably remember, which was the whole thing, you know, Vince, Vince has a theater degree, I had the music degree. We were playing stuff together. We we're, I'm sure you remember the zero room. I do that's, remember the zero ba- room. The zero room is basically how the, the Vince and Tony acoustic band, the spiritual twins happened is we started doing that for the zero room and then okay. started playing it elsewhere. So, so we what were, other, so what we other were things that. were you doing? We were doing that. And then the weird sisters things, which grew out of a theater project at CAE. And then, and then I played in a band called bitter boy. Which was a rock trio. It was a guy named Kevin Meldorf, who Vince and I had befriended. They, he was in a band called The Remnants, and he and the bass player from The Remnants, we started this thing called Bitter Boy, the three of us. And so we did Bitter Boy, and we're, you know, doing the whole play around town, drive to the college towns and play, try and get labels to listen to our music, that whole thing. We, we, we got a little tiny bit of radio success. Kevin wrote an amazing Christmas song called uh, Merry Fucking Christmas. <laughs> And, and we recorded, and it was like this this slow country song about, you know, how Christmas sucks, basically. And we changed it to Merry Friggin' Christmas and recorded it. And we recorded it. I remember this specifically. We, we recorded it at a, a studio this guy Marshall Dawson owned, which was in this groovy, totally like 70s looking two floor flat above a dentist's office right over by like Belmont and Sheffield. So not far from where we all used to do the the Sunday night. Yeah. Which you hosted that by the end of it, didn't you?
0: Oh yeah, the, the open uh, stage. Yep, the uh, at uh, at Sheffield's at Sheffield's bar, Sheffield's on, the, bar. on the corner. So, right.
1: like in that same neighborhood, these guys had this little sixteen track studio in their apartment, and so we recorded. We had recorded a a demo at another studio, and then we recorded Merry Friggin' Christmas" on Halloween night. I remember that specifically. We recorded a Christmas song on Halloween night, so we would have enough time to get it together to get it out for Christmas. Yeah because it was at the time when you you printed CDs and you went to a thing called the post office and <laughs> sent them sent them to things called radio stations and record labels. And so what we did is is not only did we do this this merry freaking christmas song which is hilarious and the the, the thing kind of looked like a christmas card and our logo was you know the bob's big boy with a hamburger. Yeah. Our, our logo and said he was holding like a cartoon bomb and had this like sinister look on his face. And I had a bass drum head that just has a bomb on it for our logo. And so we had him like dressed up like Santa Claus and, and sent it out and we, 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 we signed them like a family, you know, we signed the inside of the, it was a paper flip thing and it had, you know, red and green printing of course on the CD. And we also sent out cards to with all the ones that went to radio you know self-addressed stamped envelopes remember those yep. and so some of the radio stations sent them back letting us know that they were actually playing the song so we got some play out of that i don't think anybody high enough up the food chain noticed it unfortunately because we you know we we couldn't get arrested in chicago basically
0: yeah tell me let's talk about that like what was you know what were the struggles like trying to be a band and making it in, in chicago
1: for one there were at the time, there were a lot of places to play, which was good, but almost all of the bookers, especially at that time, really fancied themselves gatekeepers of, of greatness. So there was a lot of, if Vince and I and Bitterboy had, we rehearsed in the same spot in my folks' house, we we both had spots where we had our rejection letters. Because <laughs> that's what would happen. You would You would... You would send a press kit. You would have you would have pictures taken, and you would have your demo. And if anybody if anybody wrote anything, you had photocopies of, of write ups from you know the reader or, or the Illinois Entertainer or whatever. And you know you put all those things together, and you would hand you a lot of times you would hand deliver them to the club, right? Especially if you can go and say, hey, is is, is your talent booker in, and then you could actually meet them, right? And maybe right. they would go remember the guy from this band and blah, blah, blah. But they had stacks of these things. Yeah. So if, if you were lucky, you had a club or two that like liked you enough to book you once a month. And, or, and this is the key thing. And we only had a couple of times that worked out this way. Unfortunately, is if, if you had a booker who liked you, not only did you get regular gigs, you know, good gigs, good slots, but if, if some bigger band was coming through, or one of the bigger bands in town even was doing something, you maybe could get on that show. Okay, yeah. And hopefully enough people showed up. Hopefully you were like the first on a bill of four where the fourth band is the one people give a shit about. Right. If you could be the one right before the band people give a shit about.. Yeah. But to their people would come and hopefully they would sign your mailing list so that way the next time you're playing gigs, you send out your postcard and they see it and maybe they come out and that whole thing. And that's you know that's how a buzz was generated at the time. And we had some, we had some loyal people, we had people who liked us, but most of them were people we kind of knew. Right. And then, which actually leads me to ending up here in Bloomington. So yeah. that was Chicago. We, we were coming down to Bloomington to play a gig with our friends, the spelunkers at Illinois state, mm-hmm. you know, on campus in the student center at Illinois state. And so we came down and our other friend, and these are people Vince befriended when he was a student in Illinois state, our other friend who used to be in a band with the guys we were opening for had opened a small recording studio. Because the the mid-90s is when it it started to be affordable to open a recording studio. It didn't take $200,000 to open a recording studio. and you still get pretty good stuff. So what we decided is, hey, if we're going to go play this gig down there, why don't we go record with Edwin? That'll be really fun. And so we contacted Ed. we, We literally played the gig and then went to the studio and loaded in. And I don't remember if we set up or not. That was a Friday night. And then we played all day Saturday and Sunday, and then drove home and came down for several weekends to continue recording and working on the record. Sometime within that, Ed, the owner of the studio, says, my wife's going to have a baby. I'm thinking about hiring somebody to run the studio. And I kind of went, oh, really? Really? <laughs> and, and Vince and I used to come down here and hang out when he was a student and afterwards and see the bands that we got to know so I there was this group of musicians I, I really liked, cool people and the people around them, the people in their periphery that I had gotten to know and so it made sense for me to see if this is a cool thing and to move to this little town that I always kind of liked. Uh, Chicago wasn't doing me any favors at the time. I mean Bitterboy right. was playing but we weren't, we were kind of you know, running to stand still, you know, we were, you know, we were kind of on a treadmill uh, years, years before the cool treadmill video that came out of Chicago, you know? So, so I decided that I would move down, run the studio, drive back and forth for rehearsals and gigs. Yeah. And so that's what I was doing. I I was living down here. My girlfriend at the time and I moved down here.
0: What year is this about?
1: This is 1996. Okay. And, and so I, I, I got a job at the, at the local music store and was running the studio and just kind of doing my thing. And then I started the band Whiplot that I mentioned earlier, because mm-hmm. that was one of my things in the back of my mind. Dean Carlson, the, the leader of Whiplot, the main songwriter, had been in a couple bands I really liked, including when Vince was a student. There was this thing called Super Sound 86 that he went to at the student center, and he called me the next day. Was like, "You got like, there's this really cool local band called That Hope. You got to check them out. They're so cool. I bought the record, blah, blah, blah and then you know he copied the record onto cassette and then they they exploded and had another band which was all the guys but one then that band exploded so dean was kind of floating he had recorded a solo record with this guy named pink bob but i don't think it even had been released and i was moving down here and he worked with the guy who in the studio and i saw him regularly so i was like "Ooh, i could start a band with dean i've been listening to dean since i was like 15 or 16 years old this will be awesome and so I did just that. I said, it's, and it started with just every Monday or Tuesday or whatever, Dean and I would just get together and play at the yeah. studio. So I would play with brushes. you play acoustic guitar? I remember specifically on my birthday that year, my birthday celebration was setting up. I, I literally went for the, the the weirdest, cheapest mics we had in the studio, <laughs> like goofy things that you plug into cassette players and weird podium mics and stuff that Ed had kind of collected. And I recorded the two of us just doing some of the songs that we had been working on in this weird lo-fi thing because it was a digital recording. studio, So everything was nice and clean and pristine. And I was like, let's record all the goofy, weird shit instead, (laughs) you know, which is still a thing I like to do. I know. And so I did that and, and we started talking about players, like, let's, let's actually like put a band together, plug in guitars. And, and I mentioned, this guy Fish, this guitar player. I'm like, I think Fish would be really cool, and I always liked him. He had played in a bunch of bands that I got to know, and I always liked his vibe of like hanging out with him whenever I would come down here and see bands play. I liked the band he was playing in at the time, so I was like, "What, how, what do you think about Fish on the guitar?" He's like, "Oh, he, yeah, that'd be cool." And I mentioned a, a bass player I would have loved to have played with, but he mentioned a different bass player who I also would have loved to have played with, and he's like, "But if we use James, who who had been in that hope." back in the day and, and bands before that hope, he's like, if we use James, James sings background so we can have better harmonies. I'm like, okay, cool. So we asked those guys and they were like, yeah, sure. You know, James had played in several bands with Dean. So he, James kind of had a tacit. If Dean asked me to do it, I'm playing kind of situation. Right. Right. And fish knew who Dean was and was friends with Dean knew who I was, knew who James was, I was like, that sounds like a cool band to be in. And <laughs> and, and we started just rehearsing and, playing gigs. And we played our first gig in September of 1997. And our last gig was not obviously the Christmas we just had, but the Christmas before.
0: So Twenty nineteen.
1: or it might actually might have been the fall. Fish might have come through in the fall for some reason. We might have played a gig in the fall instead of Christmas. A lot of times what we would do at Christmas too is we would sometimes book something with one of the different bands Vince plays with, either his band, the artist formerly known as Vince, or the Mm Hamburglers, which literally dress like the Hamburglar (laughs) and play punk rock. And it's awesome. And so what we would often do is we would do a gig in Chicago and then a gig down here. Oh, nice. Yeah. So we, we would get two gigs out of one trip of fish coming to town. Which was always great, and a lot of times, Dean and James and I would rehearse without Fish once or twice, and we wouldn't actually play with Fish until whichever one of those gigs we played first here or Chicago, yeah, because he was you. Know, that's where we would converge, is at the first gig, and that and that's kind of still the case of that band. If, yeah, if Fish is coming to town, he tries to let us know in enough time to, to try and book something.
0: Do you have another? Do you have another band that you that you work with on a regular basis?
1: And then I I play in the Sarakwa band. Okay, right. Who is an artist who came to the studio, and I recorded an EP with her, and then some singles. And I had this. We got to know each other. We became fast friends. And Sarah and I are still super tight, even though we don't see each other as much for obvious reasons. Yeah. But I, I had we had we had all these very similar influences of really loving a lot of the '70s singer songwriter type records Mm -hmm. and the Jackson Brown records and Carol King and all those kind of things. And I had this idea in my head of I would like to do a record that sounds like that with Sarah. Yeah, She's a great songwriter. She's a great singer. And another friend of mine also named Sarah had just started a record label it's called Palo Santo Records out of Texas. And I convinced Palo Santo Records to give us money to make this record that I wanted to make, this very specific... You know, if, if you put it on in a playlist that had Jackson Brown and Hollow Notes Oates and all those kind of things. And you put those songs right in the middle, you wouldn't go, where, where'd this song come from? <laughs> you would go, maybe I don't know this song, but it would sound like that.
0: Right. Right. Yeah.
1: And I built a band around her. I, she had a bass player. She was still working with from a church band she was in. And I wanted to play drums specifically because I want, I knew exactly what I wanted the drums to sound like, how I wanted the drums played. So instead of explaining that to someone, I was just going to play drums on it. And then there was this keyboard player named, named Mark, Mike Gardner that I really love. And I, I said, hey, are you interested in doing this kind of whole album we're gonna rehearse and record? It's not just like show up and play solos like I often hire him to do. And he's like, sure, why not? That sounds cool. And then actually Edwin, the guy who owned the studio that I used to work at, I had him play guitar. And then another guy named Treffin Owen played a couple of solos. And another guy named Jerry Erickson played some steel guitar on the record. And then when we went to do the release show, Edwin was available, but both Treffin and Jerry were on guitar and we did that. And then we kind of didn't do anything. She was still playing solo gigs, but she, she went when there was a gig that had some money, she would call us all together and play. And, and I said to her, like, why don't we just start rehearsing? Why don't we just be a band? If these guys are, are into it. And so it, it became the guy who plays pedal steel. He also plays six string guitar. Mike, the keyboard player the bass player who had come with her from the church band and, and the first EPs, and myself <laughs> we became the saraquois band oh nice so we, we convened to make her record her first full-length lp called taking me back and eventually and it took some time and it took some to to being the saraquois band okay and it, and it's been great it's it's an uphill climb to be an artist making original music but we, i just I had Sarah come to the studio for something I was doing with a student a couple of weeks ago and we had dinner after that. And she, she was talking about, she went through a period of time like artists do where she was just, she was feeling very downtrodden about being an artist and, you know, just making enough to scrape by. And, and then you, you know, you get all these voices in your head, your own voices and things people say to you, don't do this, do this, don't do that, do that thing, play this, yep. game. And, you know, like, like you could just automatically do that because somebody says you can do it. So she's she she and I had a discussion and we decided like we're just not going to worry about that stuff. We're just going to make a record. We're just going to make the next record and figure out what it's going to be, both musically and commercially. We're just nice. going to we're just going to make her.
0: And I want to talk so at, you know at some point let's talk about the studio and let's talk about you, you know, launching your own business because that's another that's another thing where you've got those voices in your head. you, you came you came to a kind of a crossroads in terms of that studio talk a little bit about that what happened with that
1: what happened actually is i was working for someone else who bought a building and the plan is he was going to use half of that building for the studio we were gonna you know build it out make it better make it deluxe and all these things and then he quit his day job so then he was pivoting what he was going to do with the studio Mm -hmm. and what he was going to do with this building he bought and he decided he, he had worked at a pawn shop he decided to open his own pawn shop and realized at some point that he hadn't even stepped into the studio in a while and then he quit his job so he's worried about money so he said well for the time being if you just take over the studio bills i won't take my cut of the studio that way i don't have to think about it at all right you, you pay the bills you do the thing you deal with we were subleasing, subleasing guy at the time you do all those things and you can keep running otherwise i had i gotta pull all the gear and put it in the garage like, okay, I will pay the bills. So even if I have a bad month, I'd reach out of my own pocket. I'll pay the bills to keep going. And then as he's building out to punch up and dealing with this and that, he comes to me again and says, one, I haven't been there in nine months. Two, I'm trying to launch a business that's going to take a lot of hours and a lot of work and a lot of effort. You really should just buy me out. That's what you should do. I said, OK, and I basically we we haggled back and forth about who gets which pieces of gear because he's still he's still a musician, wants to have a little home studio for himself. Right. What things I didn't want, what things blah, blah, blah. And he sold some of the things at the pawn shop, get some of the things he liked. Loan me some things he wouldn't sell me. Like I, there are pieces <laughs> of gear in the studio almost 20 years later that belonged to him. right but there still is because he wants to still own them which is fine which is totally cool because i appreciate having that gear available to me that i didn't have to pay for and so i you know came up with it begged borrowed and stole and got some money from my folks to to buy the studio from him Mm -hmm. found this location almost haphazardly i was still working in a music store and this guy one of our regular clients said hey i'm playing with this guy who has access to this cool studio space that his landlord, his, his boss has. Somebody built it out, but they didn't really know how to run the studio. So they kind of pulled out. So it, we're just jamming in there and they're using one room as an office. Yada, yada. would you be interested in partnering up with us? I said, I don't want to partner up with you. I want the space. But they, of course, were abandoned. They were getting to rehearse in there for nothing because because the bass player he was playing with worked for the landlord right? Uh, at his HVAC business. So literally, as I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do, I'm paying it and figuring all this stuff out. That same dude comes back in the music store a month and a half later and says, hey, I know you wanted that space. The bass player got fired, so we're, we have to move out. But I know the landlord and I can introduce you. And the funny thing is, actually, he didn't come in the store. I was actually about to leave my house to go play a gig in Chicago with my brother. Yeah. It at one of the times when when his band was in some kind of flux or before he had his band solidified so i was going up to chicago to play a gig and the landline in my house rang and i ran back in the house thinking you know what if this is vince telling me the gig is canceled i don't want to drive all the way up there and find <laughs> out so instead of running in and grabbing the phone to the young listeners landlines were phones that you didn't carry with you everywhere you go and i pick up the phone and it's, it's this dude bob going hey man the bass player quit his job we're gonna to have to move out but i know landlord you want to meet the landlord to go about getting that studio space and i said to him i told him like i am literally on my way to a gig in chicago but tell the call the landlord after you get off the phone with me and say my friend is interested and get literally the earliest time you can get after three o'clock tomorrow afternoon that i can meet with this dude because i'm going to play in this gig and i'm staying in chicago and i will get up and i will make sure i'm back in town by three Three in the afternoon, yeah, which gave me time to play a gig and hang out with my brother. My brother and I always talk till five in the morning when we're together, and still get a little bit of sleep and get back. You know, drive two two hours back to meet. And so, I did that, and I got home, and I called the dude who new landlord, and we had set it up for the next that Monday. And so I met my landlord. We got along. We still get along really well. He's an oddball, but I love him, and he's treated me amazingly. And he showed me the space. It was there were some things that weren't done. Mm-hmm. The live room was done, but like the hallway and the booth, they were framed out and they had hushboard, but they didn't have drywall yet. Okay. The window wasn't in the the booth. The bathroom had been built out by the earlier people as a booth. So so it had those windows and, and the walls and everything, but the plumbing wasn't finished. It needed to be moved up there. Yeah. All this kind of stuff. But what the landlord did, and he was really cool, he he gave me the keys. He's like, come in here, think about how you want to set it up, think about things you need to do. If you need me to do anything, you know, we really need to move that the, the toilet was in the basement. And it was just in the basement with a little sink. You know, it wasn't even a bathroom. And you really can't let clients go down there, kind of thing. Right. And he knew I was want he knew I wanted to run a commercial studio. He's like, We really need to make that the bathroom there. The stuff is run, we just need to bring the toilet up, that kind of thing. So that'll be the bathroom. Okay. And He's like, bring your wife over. I was married at the time. Discuss it. This is what I need monthly. Blah, blah, blah. You know, think about it. So I, I literally, I left the, the music store every night for a week and just went in that space and looked around and thought about how I can set it up and how I could put the gear I already owned and, and the stuff I was buying from Ed and how I would set the room up and how I'd set the control room up and all the things, and I just I, was, I just envisioned the space and how I wanted to use it and how I could use it. And a couple of things I wanted to change so I could do anything, it gave me a lot of flexibility.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: And so I discussed it with him and, and, and went to move and signed the lease and had a time. One of the worst things that's ever happened. The professional movers I hired, I, I did not go to a conference that was in California instead i i spent the movie money to have professional movers instead of asking all my musician friends to help me move the heavy stuff which was the the big mixing console and the heavy tape decks and the hammond organ those things all weigh shit done yep and so i decided i was going to pay professionals who i i tried to get to come over and see the stuff and the space beforehand and they didn't but the way you you walked up the stairs and it was kind of a hard right and a u into the control room of the place i was moving out of but there was also this hallway beyond the stairs and when we moved that console in which we bought from johnny k who produced plain white tees and disturbed and all these bands as he was getting bigger and getting better gear we bought a few different things from him over the years because we had a connection so that's where that console came from so it had a kind of cool history to it and we learned we just got a bunch of buddies to haul the thing up there and then you know and a case of beer (laughs) that's how that's what i should have done to move it to my place because what happened was I hired professional movers, and I, I told them the path that works to get this thing that is seven and a half feet long, that can't be bent, that has right. electronics in it, blah, 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 blah. I should have taken all the channels out of it, I learned after the fact, that would have been smarter. But instead of taking the physical path that would work with the hallways to get straight down the stairs, they're like, we're professionals, we can make this corner. And poof, I heard it bash around. Oh. And then when they got down to the bottom of the stairs, I heard a. Poof a bash again and when i got it to my new place it didn't work and i had already set up i had my tech guy from georgia who had rebuilt my tape deck it was already set up that he was coming a few days later to help me get the room up and running, make sure the tape deck was okay after the move get it to where i can open and we we spent he was supposed to be here for two days he was here for six and in that time the tape machine was fine but we could not get the mixing console to work we bought a power supply from a guy in chicago we did all kinds of stuff we realized there was probably a hairline crack in the motherboard oh man and so that turned into a whole not only did i have to then scramble to find more money and find a console to buy but it also pushed my my opening date by three months
0: oh by yeah the time all yeah. that
1: stuff was dealt with yeah but it, it pushed off my opening it it you know it was it was rough but in that time, I got to know the landlord pretty well. He, he's a hustler. He's yeah. a guy who, he will, Mark will work a million hours a week. He's that guy. He is not a guy who like sits around drinking beer. He will work a bunch and then have a couple beers, but then he will sleep a couple hours and get up and work more. <laughs> and so a lot of times, if I came out of the studio late at night, I would check and see his his office is in the same building. Mm-hmm. I would look and see if there was a light on, knock on the door. So I got to know my landlord really well. We would bullshit a lot. We, we, we are what, what a Republican and a Democrat are supposed to be. Because we can talk and say, but what about this thing? And we can sometimes go, okay, maybe you have a point. Yeah. Even though we still end up being opposites. But we're still really good friends. I've helped them rehab places, do, done all kinds of stuff with them over the years. And the benefit of that has been in almost 20 years, my rent has gone up once, which was, which was written into the, my original lease.
0: My oh, nice. original
1: lease was two year was, it was either three or four years. And after two years, my rent went up by $50 a month and has not gone up since. Nice. nice. You know, so that's, that's one of those things you're talking about. How do you survive in a creative world? That's one way is to, to be in control of your expenses. And it was worth all those hours that even though I was tired after a session that I went BS with my landlord for an hour before I went home.
0: Yeah, making you know, making personal connections and yeah, all that I mean, sort of thing. He takes
1: good care of me. Yeah. Even the one summer, something was screwing up with my air conditioning, and he actually tied into his power because there was something going on. And he couldn't figure out why electri- electrically it was happening, mm-hmm. so he tied my, he tied my furnace into his power for a summer. I I had a whole summer I didn't have to pay my air conditioning. Cause he couldn't figure out how to do it. And then he got busy and like, he realized it halfway through the next summer. was like, Hey, I never hooked your stuff back to your power. I'm going to do that. <laughs> like, Oh shit. I forgot about it too. And then he hooked it up back and my electric bill went up and that's fine. Yeah, And he didn't bitch and he didn't ask for money from the whole last summer. He And, and for heat, you know, what, what it cost to run during the heating, which of course the gas bill is separate. But you know, he didn't ask for back pay on it. He was just like, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna do this, and you're gonna to have to pay your own electric again." Oh yeah. yeah. And it was just on the one part I was paying, you know, for all my gears electric.
0: So I'm gonna ask you. Let me ask you a question. Normally, what I do, you know, toward the, you know, toward the end, is, you know, sort of ask uh, what advice you might have for for people who are either, you know, who are interested in music at any level or anything like like that. But I thought maybe it's better to ask what advice do you have for me yeah, as, as someone who likes to, you know, play a little, you know, guitar and, you know, and on and occasion, sing a, little. sing a little and, and, and all that. I,
1: I would say, keep pursuing that. You mentioned the possibility of taking lessons, you know, take some lessons, learn some things and learn them just to learn them. Don't learn them because you want to do X or because you want to do Z. Learn them for the joy of learning and the joy of music making. And if they, if they come out in other areas, like, for instance, putting that song in a film that we worked on together, or a role comes up where, you know, you can play a few chords on the guitar, it helps you, but don't do it because you're going to try and get the role of, you know, the college douchebag who plays acoustic guitar. <laughs> do it because you enjoy sitting with a guitar on your lap and making music. Yeah, but don't just let it be only that because you have you have this desire for for knowledge. You're that kind of person. You know, you, I've seen you do that. You you've learned languages and learned to write and you acted when I first <laughs> met you. I mean, you, you're that guy. You're that guy who just likes to learn things, which is awesome, which is probably why I still like to talk to you all these years later. So learn, learn things that are maybe difficult that won't ever go out in public. Who cares if, if you enjoy doing them, do them. And I think the same thing, That's a that conversation I had with Sarah Kwa. she's just like, I'm, I am just going to make music to please myself, and we will try, sure, we'll play some gigs and we'll play cover songs at gigs and stuff like that, but we're going to make this record and it's going to be what it's going to be, and we're not even worried about hyping it.
0: Yeah. What's it's
1: the just, let me, I... I
0: I'm going to, I just, you made me think of something. You, we talked a lot about trying to come up in, in a big city in Chicago as a band in the nineties. What's the difference between then and now in terms of trying? Is it,
1: it is easier, harder, it's just both. different. It's yeah. both because the internet did level playing field in that anybody can release a record, mm-hmm. but the idea is still the same as like, but you still have to make people pay attention to it. Yeah. So the hustle, you still have to hustle and you have to figure out, and you have to get lucky. I just made a record with a person named Andy Anderson. They go by Realistic Human, but I can't remember her band camp. But she happened to get into, she's she's a theater student, and they, excuse me, she uses they pronouns. They're a student at ISU as is a theater student and 19 years old into TikTok. Makes these goofy TikTok videos happen to make a TikTok video with a song from some band that's kind of blowing up as the just this little 30 seconds of her dancing to this band. But she or somebody tagged the band and then the band reposted it oh. on their social media. So they have like that. I think that video has a million views and they have like a hundred thousand followers on TikTok. And so I convinced them, you should obviously make the TikTok people aware of this EP we made, but put it on Bandcamp first, because you can actually get paid a little bit before it goes to the streamers. So do six months on Bandcamp, and then put it on all the streaming services, because you won't make money on the streaming services. Okay, I think Lady Gaga made like 38 cents on Poker Face or something. It's, it's ridiculous <laughs> how, ba- how, how poorly the streaming companies treat artists is ridiculous. And that's why there's been all those protests at the Spotify headquarters in San Francisco recently because it's literally tenths of a cent per play or something, yeah, on yeah. Spotify. And 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 here's a typical if I if I might be slightly political as usual the African American community doing better things than the rest of America even though America has treated them like shit all these years. Title, which is another streaming company that's owned by one of the big hip hop guys. Pays artists like five or eight times what Spotify pays them, but people aren't signing up for title in nearly as number You know, it so if you're gonna if you're gonna pay for a streaming service, streaming music service, title's the way to go because they're they're a lot more artist centered and releasing music on Bandcamp. Bandcamp only takes twenty percent. Oh, okay, you take in, and they when COVID hit, and you know touring became a non thing. Right. The first Friday of every month, they call Bandcamp Friday and Bandcamp doesn't take their cut from anything that is bought for that 24 hours from, I believe it's midnight Pacific until the next midnight Pacific on Friday, Bandcamp is, is genuine here. It is, you control your page, you control, they keep adding features to it. There's an app now, there's all kinds of stuff. And if you if you go to to the Whiplot site or Andy site or Sheracquoz Bandcamp site or any artist I've ever worked with or any artist you just like, if you buy their music, eighty percent of whatever you paid goes to that artist. Nice on, ban, on Bandcamp Friday, one hundred percent goes to that artist. Nice. You know, so I encourage people, music lovers and artists, be all about Bandcamp.
0: All about Bandcamp. All right. Well, so, thanks. I don't,
1: know, I don't know. I'm so honored that you asked me to do
0: this too. That was awesome, yeah. though. I mean, it you was super fun. You had a you had a quite a wild journey. and I uh, have.
1: I have. And, 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 and I'm still and, doing it.
0: Yeah, you are. And that's great. That's great. You
1: know, I, I, somehow, by the by the grace of whomever, my room is still open.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, I wanted to ask you about the. I want to ask you about the the pandemic and stuff like that. But
1: actually, yeah, I started a service called Drumstogo.net to try. And I started before the pandemic. The idea being a lot of people have home studios, but they're using Superior Drummer or some kind of drumming program. And instead, you can send tracks to me and I play live drums and you can have real live drums in a real room. I'm not just playing in a bedroom, you know, so there's room mics and, you know, you get 12 14 16 tracks of drums yeah and they send me a song i play it i send them an mp3 of it if they like it they say okay cool if they want to change they tell me and i play it again do the same thing yeah and when they've when they've finished payment i send them all the tracks nice and they can do whatever they want with them nice you know so i did a lot of that and i've I've done a little bit more hip-hop than i've done in a while because that can be done just one or two people in the room right Okay. Though I do have I do have a band session booked for April. But also yeah. last Friday, a couple of days ago, I got my first shot. Nice. And then I'll have my second shot before that band comes in. Yeah. And everybody's been super particular anyway. Right. We could start rehearsing again. So it's like cool, yeah, let's start rehearsing. So we're going to start rehearsing again. We're going to start ramping it up slowly.
0: Very cool. All right. I want to thank you Tony for for being here and I want to play your song now. So this so off the just ad nauseum album, this is Sunshine Factory by Whiplot. i